Good evening, church family. Warm welcome. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be with you in God's Word this evening. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24. John 16, verses 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Mighty and merciful Father, would you open our eyes tonight to see your power and to see your grace? Would you help us this evening with clarity to see your truth and what it means for our lives. Would you show us our Savior, Jesus? For we wish to desperately see him. We ask that you would do this by your Spirit and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If I gave you one word to describe this last year, what would you use? Maybe one emotion. I wonder what comes to your mind. I asked this question to a few friends this last week and got some interesting answers. Throne, blur, under construction, gave them that with a hyphenation. Uh, some maybe not appropriate to be uttered. Unimaginable. Each person's answer to that question is different. We each have different answers. But the word that we're going to consider this evening is one that we've perhaps all experienced in some ways over this last year. It's the word grief. And the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. You might be familiar with this verse from Psalm 30, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I don't know about you, but Did you wake up joyful every morning over this last year? Or how about even this last week? 
makes you wonder, is there something deficient about the Bible or maybe more likely deficient about me? And so tonight, we're going to zero in on this particular emotion in this passage, grief, sorrow, and see what Jesus has to say about it and the antidote to it. So we're going to look at what is it, what it's not, and the antidote. But before we get to that, let's make sure we have a lay of the land because we're just jumping into this passage. There's so much that happened on this first Maundy Thursday evening. You know, we're in Holy Week, the journey to the cross. And last Sunday, we celebrated Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he has finally announced, my time has now come. And you are at, or you're tuning in to the Maundy Thursday service, which can mean one thing, you're at church on Thursday, it's, it's Maundy Thursday. Like Austin said earlier, tonight we remember that final evening that Jesus spent with his disciples before the crucifixion. And it has been quite an evening for them. Some ordinary things like celebrating the Passover. This was something that they would have done together as children for as long as they were alive. Israel had been doing this for centuries. But there's also undoubtedly some things that were quite strange to the disciples as well that had their heads spinning. The first really odd thing that happened, if you remember, is they came in off the filthy streets and Jesus, the same one who they were shouting Hosanna, who there were rumors that he might be king, gets down on his knees to wash the filth from his disciples' feet. Kings don't wash feet. Or perhaps this king is different. And this Jesus, just a few verses, chapters later, we see institutes what we call the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate this evening. doesn't give a whole lot of color to it like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but we see here that he says he's going to give a piece of bread to someone who he's, is going to betray him. He said, here you go, Judas. And then, of course, the disciples murmur amongst them, what is happening? Is Judas going to pay for the food? Is that what's happening? Or who is it that is going to betray you, Lord? And then, of course, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him not once, but three times. What is going on at this dinner table, this conversation that we enter into? We enter into this room where the conversation is happening and the disciples are equal parts sad and confused, which is why we pick up in verse 16 and 17, and they, they say, what, what is going on here? What, does, what is Jesus talking about? And then they repeat this, this riddle, this refrain that Jesus says a couple times, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And of course, if we were there too, we would be thinking to ourselves, what is Jesus talking about? And I love the way that John writes this because the disciples, they didn't say that out loud, but Jesus being fully God and fully man, hears the turmoil in their hearts and he meets them there. He says, is this what you guys 
are asking about. You guys want to know what I meant when I said this. And so Jesus clarifies for us why he says that strange riddle to our ears in verse 20. And he does this in two parts. Part one is you are going to be sorrowful. You are going to weep. But part two, that's not the end. Your grief is not the end. Your sorrow will turn to joy. So let's start with the sorrow. Looking at our first point, what is grief? What is it? This is what I mean when I say grief. There's different definitions that we could have, but this is what I mean. Grief is how we react to loss, whether it's physical or abstract. Grief is how we react to loss, whether it's physical or abstract. So the first thing that I want us to see in these verses is that grief is. Grief is. I know you say, is that what four years of seminary gives you, Captain Obvious? But it it goes without saying, it's important to say here that grief exists. Sorrow and sadness that comes from loss is a reality in this broken world. And we see it that those who were even closest to the Messiah still had grief. And we know this is why Jesus came after all. Read regularly to our daughter, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And Sally Lloyd-Jones reminds us that Jesus came to make everything sad come untrue. But until that time, when Jesus returns, there's still sadness. There's still cancer. There's still death and loss. And we see that Jesus himself recognizes and acknowledges this reality in verse 20 when he says to his dear friends, you will be sorrowful. You will weep. And we remember that just a few chapters earlier, Jesus himself was deeply moved when he heard about the death of his friend Lazarus. And when he saw the grief on his disciples and his friend's face, he was moved. It's a beautiful picture here because we see that Jesus doesn't dismiss or ignore their sorrow. In fact, he has experienced some of it himself because grief is. Grief is a reality. But, but, that great conjunction of grace, grief is temporary. We see at the end of verse 20, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And then Jesus gives an extraordinary illustration of a woman giving birth. Full disclosure, I'm always uncomfortable with men who try to share birthing stories about their wives or other women. But since this is Jesus, he he gets a pass here for telling this, this story. I loved the way that one of our new moms, Rachel Kettle, Austin's better half, uh, put it in our devotional today. She wrote, Other moms told me that you forget about the sickness, the pain, and exhaustion, and that your hormones are wired this way. 
up until last month, I just simply didn't believe them. And then it happened. A year and a half after that first positive test, I finally thought to myself, maybe one day I would want to have another baby. For me, it wasn't only just experiencing the first moments of life that dimmed the pain, but also seeing my daughter grow and laugh and play, seeing the light in her eyes and the joy of a human being born into this world. Memories of the pain faded just like the scar on my abdomen. Jesus is using this story of a woman giving birth to prepare his disciples for the grief that is to come. The grief that they would experience around his death, yes, but also the hope that is to come in his resurrection, the surpassing joy that they experience in knowing him, a joy that can make grief fade, a promised joy that comes on the other side of grief. It doesn't mean that we didn't experience that hardship. It doesn't mean that it wasn't real. It doesn't mean that we didn't cry. But we're not grieving, at least in the same way, anymore. We're not dominated by grief in that way because joy has arrived and it's changed everything. So the question to, to think about this evening is, are you in anguish? In what ways, I should probably say, are you in anguish? In what ways are you experiencing the pains of childbirth? How are you processing it? Denial? Are you running from it or running to something else? Trying to drink it away or abusing prescription medications? Running to unhealthy friendships? We see here in this passage the joy that transforms grief can only be found in one place, in one person. And it's in the one who says in verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. I love Jesus' pursuit of us. It's an active voice there. It's no longer you will see me again, but Jesus says, I will see you again. And I want to say something, especially for those who are keenly longing for heaven. When I say temporary, that grief is temporary, I don't want to sound dismissive or overly simplistic towards anything that you're feeling. Grief can be and is a process that we experience over a lifetime. I think of even uh, the professor, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who kept a journal as he watched his wife decay and dying of cancer that was later titled, A Grief Observed. And he said that he only stopped writing in that journal because he couldn't find blank journals around his house in which he cared to write about the subject. He didn't want to go buy new journals to fill them with grief. You might even feel like Lewis when he wrote these words, there's no reason why I should ever stop. 
Because there's something new about my grief to be chronicled every day. Friends, you and I might be living with the grief that we've experienced over this last year for the rest of our lives. I know that I will. But even then, and I don't say this lightly, as Peter says and reminds us, the good news is that after you, after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Grief is but grief is temporary. Second thing I want us to see this evening is that grief is not a lack of faith. I feel like it needs to be said. We'll be brief on, briefer on this point. I say this because on a fair number of occasions when I sit with people, they are ashamed and almost apologize at times for the, their grief, thinking that it's there's something unchristian about grieving. But I say to you about that, that is poppycock. That is rubbish. Been hanging around our Brits a little bit lately, or if you've been hanging out around old Appalachian Yancey, that is hogwash, all right? Read the Psalms. You only have to see that David's grief is on full display. And there are a lot of different types of psalms in the Psalter, but one of the major ones are psalms of lament or sorrow. And then, of course, we think about Job. The example of Job, grief is a response to loss. Job has lost everything, his family, his home, his health, his wealth. And what does he do? It says that he rips his clothes and he pours ashes on his head as he sits and he cries out to God. And yet, in all of that pain and grief, we're told that Job did not sin. In all this, we see that the gospel alone orients our lives and gives context to our pain. The gospel is the only thing that can, can give context to the things, the grief that we have observed on this side of heaven. So for the believer, grief is, there is grief, but it's temporary. Second thing, grief is not a lack of faith. But that leads us to our third point. You have picked on, up on it hopefully by now, but Jesus teaches us that the antidote to our grief is joy. And this is no longer temporary, but it's permanent. It's not something that can be taken away from us. Using a metaphor that I thought I would never use in a sermon, joy vaccinates us against the full effects of grief. Is it too soon? Too soon for that? Joy vaccinates us against the full effects of grief. So what do I mean by that? It means, doesn't mean that we necessarily escape it, but that we're not ultimately defeated by it. We're not ultimately defeated by it. Pastor in New York, Tim Keller, says it this way, joy is the buoyancy 
that results from enjoying the unchanging privileges we have in God. Joy is the buoyancy, think light, from enjoying the privileges, the unchanging privileges we have in God. What is he saying? He's saying that what enables us to float, to live, to grieve without sinking into our pain is to experience this type of joy. And I love how Jesus' disciples take this teaching and apply it later to their own lives. The Apostle Paul wasn't even in the room, but it's great to see that he's taken this teaching and applied it to his own hearts, just as we, not in the room, can take this teaching as well and apply it to our own lives. The Apostle Paul says, even though I have all of these problems in my life, these slight momentary afflictions are outweighed by an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. But of course, if you know the Apostle Paul, these are no slight momentary afflictions. But what we need to see in our grief is that everything that we long for is already ours in Christ. That joy is already ours. Shortly after this meal, Jesus makes his way to the garden. And you want to talk about grief. Jesus experienced grief in such a physical way that his, he cried tears of blood. Jesus identifies with us in our grief, and at the greatest moment of his grief, he comforts us. Think about where we're headed tomorrow to the cross, where Jesus will experience ultimate grief so that we don't have to. He will cry out, in fact, using one of those psalms of lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that he was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was punished so that we might be forgiven. And in that moment on the cross, he was separated from the Father so that we might be ushered into his presence forever. Friends, there is an incomparable joy that comes from understanding how deeply we are loved by Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And if you hear that word joy, that joy there that he had in mind is you and me. It's an amazing thing to think about. And I'm simply going to conclude this e evening by asking you to take Jesus up on his offer. He tells the disciples to ask the Father for what they need and it will be given to them. Jesus says to us in our confusion, in our grief, that we can go to the Father, we can ask for what we need in his name and it will be given to us. We could qualify that, but there's no need to qualify that statement this evening. We all have different stories. We all have different words that describe this past year, different needs. And you know what? I don't know what 
you need, but I do know who you need. We need to see Jesus. You and I need Jesus. So let's go to him now in prayer. Father, would you give us what we need? We have nothing until you give it to us. And so we think this evening, would you comfort those who are grieving? Would you even now be preparing those who've not yet experienced this type of grief to be ready when they might experience such loss? And would you give us all joy that we might be full? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.